Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have arrived at episode 200 of Virtual Legality, and who can believe it? If you've been with us since the beginning, which isn't that long ago, I very much appreciate you following along with the channel as it's grown, as we've kind of figured out exactly what we want to talk about in this space, gotten our thumbnail game together, although it's still not perfect, and otherwise advanced from what was a little bit of clip art and a little bit of talking about law and business to hopefully what is now a even much more educational and fun show that a lot of people get to participate in in the comments and otherwise help me figure out what the next episode is going to be about. I very much appreciate it and I'm very excited to have put out now 200 episodes as soon as I'm done with this one. But in respect of that episode, I can find no better topic to discuss than the business and law of Gearbox games that has been discussed in this space in virtual legality now, I believe maybe a half dozen times, both with respect to the marketing of Borderlands 3 and Gearbox, how they dealt with it. Some of the things we will discuss in this video with how Randy Pitchford, the CEO of Gearbox, has gotten embroiled in certain lawsuits and problematic issues with respect to his company and his former general counsel. I have been contacted by people anonymously that have comments about Gearbox, how it operates, much like Mr. Schreier here in respect of his story. And in that respect, we'll find a couple of areas where I find the reporting here on this article that went up maybe an hour ago at this point to be a little bit assumptive, a little bit problematic in how it describes what's happening here. So from the perspective of a business lawyer, from a guy that's interested in contracts, I want to talk a little bit about Kotaku versus Gearbox, how they have framed what is Gearbox not giving out bonuses to the extent that clearly some of the employees at Gearbox were expecting. So without further ado, let's take a look at this Kotaku article from Mr. Jason Schreier, who I have said in the past I enjoy in terms of investigative reporting. I have issues with him on Twitter. He's he's blocked me now a long, long time ago for, I think, disagreeing with one of the articles that he wrote, but I can't quite trace that back to exactly when that happened, but that's fine. That is your right. That is your want if you're on Twitter or any other social media to block whomever you like. But it does mean that I can't get the commentary direct from the horse's mouth, if you will. So we actually read the articles and we go and we respond to people that identify their existence for us. So let's take a look at what this headline says. It says sources, colon, so anonymous sources. Despite huge sales, Borderlands 3 developers are getting stiffed on bonuses. Now, I want to take a step back because it's not always the case that the person that's writing the article is responsible for the headline, which is why I labeled this Kotaku versus Gearbox and not Schreier versus Gearbox. But one of the things that jumped out at me and made me want to read the article, admittedly, is this phrase stiffed on. And I don't know about you, but in terms of connotation, in terms of the underlying meaning of a phrase like that, I think of it as cheated. I think of it as a phrase that suggests that somebody is lying, that you are owed something and you're not getting it because someone is a bad actor that is keeping that from you. I went and looked up some of the definitions for this. And indeed, on the free dictionary, obviously a source above reproach, so make of it what you will. The very first definition is to cheat someone of something. Oh, that's how I think of it. So that made sense to me. But it also means the second definition that they've highlighted here, to fail to give or supply something expected or promised, which doesn't necessarily have that connotation of cheating, although it's kind of implied even in that assumption, right? That you have promised somebody something, that they have an expectation of receiving something, 
and you have now failed to give it to them. And we're going to see in this article that Mr. Schreier has written that one of the premises is essentially that these people that have sourced this story for him, that are employees at Gearbox, were promised something months ago, perhaps made plans, developed dependencies on that promise, and are now not going to receive what they were promised, according to these sources. And so he or Kotaku felt comfortable saying that they got stiffed on these bonuses. I have an issue with that primarily because I think it reads as cheated out of more than just not getting what may have been implied that you would be getting. But reasonable minds can differ on that score. So we will continue with what the actual substance of this article is. It says the video game Borderlands 3 was a big sales success when it launched last fall. Okay. According to its publisher 2K, which described it as a billion dollar global brand. Now that actually doesn't describe the sales success. And so we start out with an interesting kind of standpoint of this article. That's typical puffery. That's marketing speak, the kind of which we've discussed in virtual legality as things that you can't sue over. So when you say this is a billion dollar global brand, it doesn't actually speak to how well Borderlands 3 sold. We'll see that they do speak to it later in this article and that's useful, but it's not terribly useful for selling the premise that this was a big sales success in Borderlands 3. That's why it was shocking to employees at Gearbox, the developer of the game, when the studio's CEO, Randy Pitchford, told them yesterday that they would not receive the significant royalty bonuses they expected. Employees at the studio will get small bonus checks, but nothing close to the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands that many had expected. This account is based on conversations with six people close to Gearbox, all speaking anonymously because they were not authorized to talk about what happened. Some said it was crushing news that had upended their financial plans for the future. So just at the start here, you notice a couple things. The bonuses are described as what they expected, but there isn't anything yet in this article that ascribes the creation of that expectation specifically to Gearbox or to Mr. Pitchford. So if you've been in business, if you've been in any of these kinds of bonus meetings, if you've talked to management, if you've been working on a project, I think you're probably familiar with this kind of notion where the officers or the management of a company, maybe the partners of a large law firm, tell you that we think profits are going to be good this year. We think bonuses are going to be good. You're paid on the expectation that you're going to get that bonus because revenue is going to exceed costs. You're really excited about it. And then Christmas rolls around or whatever other time frame that the studio or the front or the law firm or the company is deciding on paying bonuses. And they have a call with everybody. Maybe they have a meeting and they say, well, you know, things just didn't turn out how we had expected. And so things are not going to be quite as lucrative for you or for your specific class of employees that we otherwise would have hoped. And you say, oh man, they had implied to us that we were going to make that money. And now I am devastated. Hopefully you didn't take out a mortgage or you didn't make hugely expensive vacation plans that were based on a bonus that hadn't yet accrued, but maybe these folks did. And certainly there's a story here questioning exactly how much Randy Pitchford and the management of Gearbox led their employees down the primrose path. But as we will see, whether or not they got stiffed on this particular bonus is a question not only of whether or not the game sold, but exactly how much it cost to produce it, which to Mr. Schreier's credit, he covers in the article, but raises a lot of complicated factors about exactly what these folks should been should have been expecting. Continuing with the article, it says, Gearbox, based in Frisco, Texas, offers its employees below average salaries for the video game industry, according to more than a dozen current and former Gearbox staff 
who have spoken to Kotaku over the years. Now, that's interesting, right? This is anonymously sourced again, and the video game industry is remarkably and notably clandestine about salaries, about profit sharing, about bonus structure, about salaries versus hourly rates, about benefits, and all this good stuff. But if you are going to make this assertion, which is that Gearbox pays a lot less for people in the video game industry, you have to take a couple things into account, right? And and you really should be sourcing this a little bit better. For one, Frisco, Texas, which is just outside of Plano, I believe it's in the Dallas area, is not San Francisco, is not Los Angeles, is not Washington, is not any place on the coasts. And so you are probably expecting, and you would be right to do so, a difference in the cost of living, right? So if we look at just a random website that talks about pay, pay scales in general, and these aren't great sources, folks, so these are not to be taken as sacrosanct, but they are something and not just anonymous sources to a Kotaku article. We see here on this site, it says, the average video game designer salary at Gearbox Software, $65,000, which you know isn't a huge amount of money, certainly isn't a huge amount of money for the video game industry. We can look at, say, Electronic Arts, and we see that it pops up with an $87,921 number. And we can look all across the, the spectrum here and see other numbers that pop up that maybe have good information behind them, maybe don't. For instance, Bungie here is shown as 58,000, which is less than Gearbox. We can see other places like Blizzard as higher than that, 82,424. And I'm not saying that these numbers are the be all and end all, or even that they are terribly accurate. But it's also important to note that when you're talking about something like Blizzard and they're in Irvine, California, that a place like Irvine, California has a cost of living that's 187.1. And this is done on an average of 100. So it's about 87% higher than the average American location. And if you look at someplace like Plano, it's only 109. You say, well, Plano isn't Irvine. And I think, or, or Plano isn't where Frisco, where Gearbox is located. And I think that's right. Uh, but it is in the county. It's right next door to Frisco. I believe Frisco is in the 130s area. And it's still a significant difference from Irvine. But if you don't want to live in exactly where your company is headquartered, you've got Texas, you've got the county. And if you look at the, the same kind of comparable for Blizzard, living in California ain't living in Texas. And so if you want to make these comparisons, it's always worthwhile to compare cost of living to figure these things out. Certainly, if you're looking for your own job, that would be what I would recommend is don't just say, oh, I'm earning more money, but now I live in Los Angeles, California. You probably don't earn more money if it's not a substantial increase in your salary structure. So that's all worth kind of talking about as part of this conversation, because otherwise, all this says is they pay below average salaries according to a dozen current or former Gearbox staff. This is the kind of thing an investigative journalist and an investigative journalism type website should be able to uncover for us without just raw assertions from anonymous sources. But here we are, because as you can see from this story, it's those anonymous sources, those disgruntled employees that are the sourcing for a lot of what Jason Schreier does. To his credit, he puts out good work, but it does leave these potholes. It does leave these holes of information around which... When he gets to editorializing, when he gets to making those kind of op-ed remarks like we will see in this article, we have to take him with a grain of salt because not all of the logic is there, especially if you're paying attention to the business terms, which he's about to go into. To make up for the below average salaries, the studio offers something unique, profit sharing. Royalties from all of the developers' games are split 60-40, with 60% going back into the company and its owners, 
potentially, right? It's retained earnings, while 40% is distributed to employees in the form of quarterly bonuses. This system has been in place since Gearbox inception, and when the company has big hits, it can be lucrative. When 2012's massive Borderlands 2 came out, many Gearbox workers made enough money to buy houses, a fact that the studio often touted while recruiting new employees. So in other words, in 2012, Gearbox had a massive event in which they were apparently giving out hundreds of thousands of dollars in bonuses to each of their employees. And like any good company recruiting and marketing itself, it told people that in 2012, its employees got enough money to buy houses. That makes a lot of sense. So when they were bringing people on, I think it's implied here that that was used to set expectations for what Borderlands 3 might be. Obviously, the next game in the Borderlands series, the last time we released a Borderlands, it made people hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can get excited about this. So Mr. Schreier and Kotaku are exactly right to point out, hey, this was an expectation that was set, and these people didn't get that expectation met, as we will see as we continue. Since then, however, Gearbox has been struggling, failing to find much financial success with flops like Aliens, uh, Aliens Colonial Marines and Battleborn. As a result, quarterly bonuses have been smaller in recent years. Hey, I did my part for Battleborn. If you want the most offensive or hot takey thing that I'm going to say in this video, I loved Battleborn. Loved that game. I thought that was really, really interesting, dynamic, really interesting game design. A lot of people didn't agree with me, and it is no more. Several Gearbox employees told Kotaku that company management promised them six-figure bonuses following the launch of Borderlands 3. So that's where the rubber hits the road in this particular story. That's important for kind of pitching this as really somebody that is getting stiffed out of something that they were owed or that they thought that they were owed. Now, there is a kind of transformation when management says something down the line, whether through a memo or at a conference or through a telephone call to the employees and what they hear. And it would surprise me to a great extent if the words promise or if mandatory or some kind of other language that would suggest that this money will be coming in and you should act on it. You should rely on the fact that this money is coming in came out of the mouth of Randy Pitchford or his management group. Now, I wasn't in the room. I don't know. But I will tell you if counsel was in the room or if anybody from any law firm was talking or, or was even present at one of these meetings, they would have said, hey, no, we don't we don't know what the future holds. Heck, Borderlands 3 could have been a critical and commercial failure. So saying that we promise this amount of money isn't something that anybody should be doing. Now, Randy Pitchford has a reputation for, let's say, saying what he thinks. And so it's possible that he said things that implied a stronger promise than any CEO should be doing. But it's also possible that management said, hey, Borderlands 2, people were making $250,000 in bonuses. We have no reason to believe Borderlands 3 won't be the same. And so we appreciate you working hard on this project. We look forward to distributing those bonuses when they come in. And we're all in this together. You know, put your head down and let's keep going on Borderlands 3. It wouldn't surprise me if something was said like that. And through the transformation process, employees down the line heard it as we're going to get $250,000 plus as bonuses for this game. Is that a promise? I think reasonable minds can differ. Certainly from a legal perspective, it's not a promise. But obviously, disgruntled employees are a problem, regardless of whether or not they're leaking things to Jason Schreier of Kotaku. And so Gearbox might well have a morale and just kind of philosophical issue with how it talks to its employees right now, based on what we're seeing in this story. The more years they'd been with the company, the larger the check. 
This vision of financial success helped Gearbox's developers get through many long nights and weekends working on the game. Then, in a meeting yesterday, Gearbox boss Randy Pitchford told employees that Borderlands 3 bonus checks would be significantly lower than they had hoped, according to three people who were present. He said the game had been more expensive than expected, the company had grown significantly larger than it had been in the past, and that their sales projections had been off base. Now, we get into a little bit more specifics from 2K. The game had sold very well. We expect lifetime unit sales to be a record for the series, so it sold more than Borderlands 2, we think, or it will at the end of the day. Said Strauss Zelnick, CEO of 2K parent company Take-Two, on an earnings call in February, but it cost way too much to make. One large factor was a technology swap midway through development from the Unreal Engine 3 to Unreal Engine 4, which added a great deal of time to the project. Time is money when you talk about operating a business, right? If you have another quarter or two or four, then that's all of the employee labor costs. That's all of the licensing costs. That's all of the extra costs that you have for everybody involved with continuing to push on a project that just goes down on the red side of the ledger when you're evaluating when your game becomes profitable. In addition, before Gearbox could receive any royalties from 2K, Borderlands 3 would have to recoup not just the game's entire budget, but also the budget for all of the downloadable content, a sum close to $140 million, thanks to a contract that the two companies had signed. Now, what's important to me as a business lawyer, from someone who's reading this story from a business perspective and trying to evaluate exactly what Mr. Schreier is claiming, what Kotaku is claiming here, is that all of this right here, is legitimate. We're not talking about Hollywood accounting. We're not talking about the lawsuit between Peter Jackson and New Line Cinema about whether Return of the King had made any money because 2K was a, or because uh, New Line Cinema was able to put its costs from other movies and do things in the back office and try to shift things around. And so a lawsuit developed. We're not talking about that, at least not as Mr. Schreier describes it. What we are talking about is a development cycle that ran a lot hotter than otherwise would have been anticipated. Now, you could say, Rick, they should have realized that. They should have known that whenever these quote-unquote promises were being made. And undoubtedly, they did. But they thought, maybe if we spend $140 million, we won't just increase sales on Borderlands 2 by 20%, if in fact that's the case. But maybe we'll increase it by 250%. We're a much bigger company now. We're doing a lot more marketing. We've got 2K behind us. All this good stuff. And that number didn't develop. It's hard to say. We are not sitting in the room and Mr. Schreier is getting all of this information from disgruntled employees that are leaking out the contents of a meeting that was had with the employees yesterday. But if we assume that all of these expenses are legitimate, yes, you could accuse Gearbox of mismanagement if you're an employee there and you were so inclined to do so, to say, well, why did we have to switch engines? Why did we open up a new studio? Why, 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 why did this game cost $140 million to make? And you'd be entirely within your rights to do so. Maybe it was mismanagement. Maybe it was good future proofing. Maybe the profits of today were essentially kind of pushed down by costs to hopefully lead to more profits tomorrow. But at the end of the day, this isn't necessarily the employees getting quote-unquote stiffed on bonuses if these expenses were legitimate. If the, nobody was stealing anything, nobody was misaccounting, nobody is trying to move profits from one bucket to another in order to avoid paying bonuses, it's just the case that the game cost way more than it was otherwise expected to cost. Continuing with the article, 
Pitchford also told Gearbox developers that if they weren't happy with the royalty system, they were welcome to quit, according to those who were in the meeting. Yeah, that does kind of ring true to what we know about how Mr. Pitchford comports himself, what he tends to say in these contexts. So it's really no surprise that if any employees were upset about what they were hearing in this meeting, he could say, hey, if you want to go get flat salaries, I welcome you to go work somewhere else. I will tell you from my personal experience that in various places where I have worked, I have been in meetings like this, generally on the employee side, and I have heard these kinds of conversations and I have had that message delivered to the employees, which is to say, people have told us that if you wanted a different financial arrangement, you can happily go work across the street or in a different state or across the world because this is the way we do business at X, Y, or Z. So that sounds bad and it is bad. It's not necessarily the way that you want to lead your company, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all of this infrastructure is false or bad or otherwise cheating somebody out of the system. He did not attribute the diminished bonuses to the coronavirus pandemic, which had led to economic uncertainty and pay cuts in many other fields. He did say that he hoped to get more money to employees as an advance from 2K on future royalties to get more liquidity, more cash in the door faster because of what's happening in the world today. Now, Gearbox also had a statement, which to Kotaku's credit, they wound up publishing. And they said as follows, Borderlands 3 represents an incredible value to gamers and an incredible achievement by the team at Gearbox. Our studio is talent-led and we believe strongly in everyone sharing and profitability. The talent at Gearbox enjoys participation in the upside of our games. To our knowledge, the most generous royalty bonus system in AAA. Since this program began, Gearbox talent has earned over $100 million in royalty bonuses above and beyond traditional compensation. In the most recent pay period, Gearbox talent enjoyed news that Borderlands 3, having earned revenue exceeding the largest investment ever made by the company into a single video game, had officially become a profitable video game, and the talent at Gearbox that participates in the royalty bonus system has now earned their first royalty bonus on that profit. Additionally, a forecast update was given to the talent at Gearbox that participates in the royalty bonus to set expectations for the coming quarters. Gearbox is a private company that does not issue forward-looking statements to the public, but we do practice transparency within our own family. In other words, what they are saying is this meeting yesterday was, okay, we can now see what our sales are going to look like. We can now kind of see the curve of what Borderlands 3 is likely to make. We have crossed the threshold of exceeding costs. And so we're now going to be sending out profit checks. And we can also kind of forecast what those profit checks are likely to look like for the next eight quarters or what have you. And that's the meeting that resulted in this article where folks said, well, we thought it would be 250000 and it's only 25000 whatever those numbers might actually be. As they say, they're a private company, so they don't have to share them with anybody. But they say they went through this process. They told people what they needed to be told precisely for the opposite reasons that Mr. Schreier is describing to them here in this article, that they want to be transparent and that it's important to have those conversations with people. So again, it comes down to were people deceived by whatever Mr. Pitchford or management might have said while working on Borderlands 3 about what money they could make as part of this bonus program. I have no doubt in my mind that some folks either misheard or were misrepresented by whatever management would have told them. And so I am very sympathetic to that because when you start talking about a profit sharing program, when you look at past results and you say, oh, that could be a lot of money. I'm pretty excited about that. And it turns out that that's not the case. That's very disappointing. And maybe you go and you leak things to Mr. Schreier at Kotaku. But there's a reason that public companies 
always have the disclaimer that says that past results are not an indication of future performance, right? You see this if you're investing in stocks. You see this if you are looking at public returns from any company. Maybe you were looking at Electronic Arts or Activision. Those past results are not indicators of future performance. And I would hope that in whatever Gearbox documentation is used to evidence their profit-sharing program, there's a statement along those lines, just from a legal perspective, that says that. That says, here, we'll show you what you earned if you would have worked on Battleborn or Borderlands 2 or all these other games that we've made, but we don't know what Borderlands 3 will be. And yes, management has very high hopes for it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be investing $140 million into the program, but we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what sales will look like. And if all these costs are legitimate, nobody really got burned. It's just that those bonuses weren't as high as something like Borderlands 2. Continuing with the article, we start to get into the really weird stuff, right? We start to get into the stuff that caused me to make this video. Last year, former Gearbox lawyer Wade Callender became entangled in an ugly set of lawsuits with the studio. True. In one suit, he alleged that Pitchford had taken a $12 million bonus in 2016 when development started on Borderlands 3. True. The bonus did exist according to two people with knowledge of what happened, but it came out of the company's 60%, not the 40% of profits that were meant to go to employees. Okay, so the sourcing on this gets really, really weird, right? Because the bonus did exist according to two people with knowledge of what happened doesn't make any sense to me because I covered all of this. This is known. This is public. This is all information that is widely available. You don't need to use anonymous sources for this. I did a virtual legality last year in the summer called Randy Pitchford's $12 million magic trick, A Lawyer's View. I wound up giving quotes to Game Daily Biz and Mike Futter, who was making an article about it called Former Gearbox Employee Provides Proof. Randy Pitchford diverted funds to personal company in which we talked about exactly what happened here. You can actually see the cause of action with the contract that identifies the $15 million recoupable bonus that was paid to Gearbox for the work of the two executives here, of which $12 million was to go to Randy Pitchford and $3 million was to go for the services of Stephen Ball. You can see the follow-on that shows on March 1st, 2017, that Gearbox was asked by Pitchford Entertainment, I believe, which is, I think, ostensibly a magic company, Pitchford Entertainment Media and Magic, that he asked for his $12 million to be given from Gearbox to that Pitchford Entertainment Company for the work that he did. I analyzed this in this video, talked about whether or not it was embezzlement, because a lot of people asked me about it. Talked about the tone of the case that was brought by Mr. Callender against Mr. Pitchford. I had people respond to that video anonymously and talk to me about the goings-on at Gearbox and what was happening, and it helped inform my understanding of what was occurring here. I have the same type of anonymous sources as Mr. Schreier, but all of this was public. You don't need to source it with anonymous sources. And worse than that, right? We've got this situation where all of this did happen. This is true. But worse than all of that is the fact that in October of last year, they issued a statement that basically exonerated Mr. Pitchford and Gearbox. Now, we talked in virtual legality in the episode I just highlighted about whether or not this was kind of natural for a settlement. But the statement actually says, Upon review of all the evidence in the case, it was of the opinion of counsel that the evidence exonerated Randy Pitchford from the allegations against him, all misunderstandings between the parties have been corrected, and apologies were exchanged. Because the parties are mutually bound by confidentiality, no additional statements will be forthcoming. Now, you don't have to believe any of that. As a matter of fact, 
in this video, I say, well, that's natural for a settlement. I don't know whether Mr. Callender believes that. I don't know whether Mr. Pitchford believes that. We'll never know the full details of everything that happened there. But it is an abdication of journalistic responsibility to not include the rest of the story here, right? To have as part of your journalistic investigative description of Gearbox screwing over its employees that, hey, there was a lawsuit that was a big problem. Hey, Pitchford might have stolen $12 million to include it here in a paragraph to source it, not with the actual contract language, which is out there in the wild and linked in the description to this video, but also to not mention that it was settled, it went away, and the council, in a very unusual move, actually agreed to a settlement document that exonerated Randy Pitchford. You don't have to agree with any of that stuff, but you have to mention it. You have to include it in your article for people to evaluate. Otherwise, it just starts looking like a hit piece. And I know Mr. Schreier wouldn't want to have a hit piece out there when he could otherwise be more truthful and get the facts out to the people that might be interested in knowing them. Still, yesterday's news combined with word of Pitchford's hefty bonus has upset a number of Gearbox employees, some of whom say they expect an exodus in the near future. Those who made financial plans based on the expectations set by the company's management may now find themselves in tough spots. Yes, if you made financial plans based on a bonus that you don't yet have, that's a problem. And you shouldn't do that, but there are folks that do, and it's hard to blame them if they received really hard and fast promises from management. We don't have evidence of that in this article, but we do have evidence of disgruntled employees that certainly believe that they were promised those things, and my heart goes out to them. Gearbox, which is privately owned, has been seeking to go public, according to two people familiar with the company's plans. It remains to be seen how this news will impact that. So what we've got here is a long-form story in which Gearbox software is functionally different on a contract basis than other participants in the video game industry. And that difference is primarily that they, according to Mr. Schreier, pay less money as salary in order to pay more money as profit sharing. Now, whether or not the salaries are actually that significantly reduced for someone working in Texas versus someone working on the coast or another hub of video game activity is an open question, and we might not ever know the specifics of that answer because of how confidential a lot of this information is within the video game industry. But let's assume for purposes of this discussion that Mr. Schreier is right. Gearbox pays people less money in order to allow them to profit share. That's what we might call a skin-in-the-game type position. These employees have decided to work for a company in which a lot of the benefits of, of working for a company like this rest on whether or not your project makes money. And you're essentially betting on management because management's going to make decisions about how to allocate capital costs, exactly when to open a second studio, when to switch engines, how much money to spend getting this game to market. And you're betting on their right decisions. And maybe Borderlands 3 comes out, they have the meeting yesterday, and you say, I don't want to bet on their decisions anymore. And Randy Pitchford says, all right, then get out, because if you're not betting on us, you're not a part of the team and you should leave. And maybe it's for the best if both sides really separate in that specific construct. But if you're otherwise on board with the upside, if you think that maybe you'll get $250,000 from a game and you're a game developer on it, not you know the CEO of the company, then that upside might be worth it to you. These are the kinds of contracts that you would expect in that scenario. This is seen all across various industries. People don't make millions of dollars selling stocks just because they've got a contract with TD Ameritrade. They make it because they make bets on companies. They do these things that have high upside, but at the same time, 
they give away some of their security blanket. They give away some of that salary, maybe the benefits, maybe some of the other things that other people enjoy in their salaried positions. And they also take on a potential for downside, right? If Borderlands 3 doesn't make any money, if it turns into Battleborn, then the Battleborn folks, despite the fact that Rick Hogue at Virtual Legality really enjoyed it, doesn't make any money for the employees at Gearbox. And they look at Randy Pitchford and say, man, I wish we would have made money on that. And he says, I do too. But we move on and we hope management does a better job the next time. So maybe this story here, and it's worth telling, is that Gearbox and certain employees at the company have lost faith in the overall kind of steering of the ship that the CEO is doing. Not necessarily because they got stiffed out of bonuses specifically, but because the games that they are making aren't as successful as they otherwise should be. But I think a reasonable mind could also argue that the capital expenses you see described here that kept the profits down, that talk about $140 million cost that has to be overcome, a new studio that has been built, and all of these other things means that profitability might be more attainable in the future. It's one of the reasons why Mr. Pitchford might be saying, advance us some royalties because we're now set up for the future in a way that we might not otherwise be. And that once we have all of this stuff set, once we understand Unreal Engine 4, the next thing that we make will be that much more cost efficient. Unfortunately for the employees on the line, they don't get to decide these things. They don't get to decide the direction of the company, what projects it's going to undertake, what engine it's going to use, what contract it's going to enter into with 2K. They have to have faith and trust if you are going to be involved in an employment relationship where you have a lot of your future upside built on whether your project is going to be profitable. But that's the give and take. In a way, the employees that enter into a profit sharing program like this, where 40% of the money goes to the employee pool and where presumably a big chunk of their financial success rests on the project success, in some ways, this is the kind of collective ownership that folks like Jason Schreier and Kotaku want to advocate, that the employees have that skin in the game to make the best possible game that they can, because if it's not profitable, they won't get those bonuses. And if your article isn't going to argue that Randy Pitchford is stealing from them, and I think regardless of the paragraph that you include at the end that he was sued, and forget to mention that it was settled and that he was exonerated by statement, if you don't include those things, then all that you are claiming is that costs ran up too high and Borderlands 3 wasn't the massive success that it could have been. Now, I'd love to get more information about exactly what kind of quote-unquote promises were made by management because that changes the story a little bit. But we didn't get that context. We didn't get those specifics from this article and from Mr. Schreier. So I'm left here in the 200th episode of Virtual Legality looking at this article as a bit of a hit piece. Looking at Mr. Schreier and Kotaku and saying, well, you know, that's the risk that you run when you have a high upside equity-based kind of compensation program. And that, yeah, maybe they make less money on a salary basis, although I didn't really see the proof of that in this article. But even if they do, if they've got that upside, that's something that their contemporaries that are making slightly more money on a salary level don't have. And so you're essentially betting on the successfulness of your project which means you're betting on the successfulness of your management, which doesn't mean you got stiffed on bonuses as much as maybe you got stiffed on good management. And that might, at the end of the day, be the story here, but I really wish we had more context. I really wish we had better information, and I really wish the article didn't end with just random hits against Randy Pitchford, who, 
with a lot of the statements that he makes is undoubtedly deserved of them, but maybe not in this particular context. That's been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, please like, please subscribe. It's episode 200. Tell your friends we're having a party here. We want to have 200 more at least. And we love doing this series. We love talking to you in the description or in the comments to these videos. And if you have somewhere that you like to be on the internet that I'm not familiar with, whether it's Twitter or Reddit or other places on YouTube or NeoGAF or Reset Era or maybe some random places that I have never ever heard of, share it around. Tell folks that we're having these discussions. Hopefully they're good discussions. Hopefully they're illuminating. And we talk about these things all the time. Just yesterday, we went all the way through the Final Fantasy VII streaming restrictions, which are really, really interesting, especially now that copies of that game are available in Europe and available in Australia more than a week before the release date. And that's something worth worth reading, worth understanding. If you were at all interested in that game, I highly recommend you check out that video. And we've covered a lot of other things that really shouldn't be named on YouTube because they like to ding us on, on sharing and the algorithm and everything else. So we won't do that. But if you caught this on the aforementioned YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If this isn't your first episode, if you've been following us for a while, thank you so much for helping make this the success that it has been here in episode 200. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you there as well. We've got a lot of listeners in its podcast form. I know a lot of people listen to it while they drive or while they're otherwise stuck at home now with stay-at-home orders across the country. We very much appreciate the listeners as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you for episode 200, for being here with us. And I will catch you on the very next 200 episodes of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.